Hey, I'm Tim Baker, host of the Pulse Podcast. In this episode, I sat down with Doug Hirsch to talk about his entrepreneurial journey from founding GoodRx over 10 years ago to their IPO in September of last year. Before founding GoodRx, Doug was a very early employee of both Yahoo and Facebook. At both of those organizations, he ran early iterations of some of their major products, including chat and mail at Yahoo, as well as photos at Facebook, creating the idea of tagging, which is now one of the pillars of the modern social media world. In our conversation, while we do talk healthcare, we focus more on how he keeps the consumer experience at the center of everything he does. Doug saw a broken, complicated, and honestly baffling experience when he went to pick up his own prescription and has spent over a decade trying to solve that problem, creating a massive tech giant with over 15 billion in market cap in the process. Doug, welcome to the Pulse Podcast. We're so excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. Um, just to get started, we'd love to get to know you a little bit better. So can you tell us a little bit about what you wanted to be when you grew up? Wow. I know I did not want to be a business person. I remember when I was growing up in New York, uh, I lived in a suburban town and everybody was in their trench coats and their briefcases on their on getting on the train to go into Manhattan. I remember uh, telling my parents many times, like, that is not my thing. I don't want to be that guy or that kid, I guess, at that point. So I, I was determined from an early age to find something I absolutely loved doing where uh, work never felt like work. And yeah, other than that, I didn't really have much of a clue. To be honest, I don't think I had much of a clue I wanted to do when I was 25, let alone when I was a kid. Um, I just sort of felt where my, my passion and obsessiveness took me. And that's really what's guided me most of my life. Oh, that's great. And look where you are now, a businessman. I don't see a trench coat or a top hat, but uh, maybe we can get you one of those. Um, but yeah, you've got some pretty incredible experiences early on in your career. I mean, you, you spent time at Yahoo and Facebook, both early on in those companies' journeys, working in product roles. So how do you think about those experiences now that you've created your own tech giant, if we can call it that? I don't think of it as a tech giant, I guess, because as an entrepreneur, I always feel like you're one step away from imminent death in terms of just, you know, it's a doggy dog world out there. And I think, I don't know, any entrepreneur is constantly looking around to see who's right behind them. But in terms of um, sort of career choices, as I said a minute ago, I, I just don't think I have the patience or tolerance to do something that I'm not feeling super passionate about. I, I also, I think I'm deeply, deeply insecure and I want to be able to walk out of wherever I'm working and talk to my friends and family and, and have them interested in what I do for a living. And so I think that's driven a lot of the choices. I, when I first graduated college, I, I worked in the music business because I thought it would be cool. Then I thought technology was going to be cool. And I... I think I'm basically obsessed with doing things that I think are important and that make a difference. And, you know, lest that sound too altruistic, it's also because I just, again, am insecure and I want to feel like I'm important. And so it's worked out. I don't know how to chart it into a course for others, except that I do strongly feel that you're not going to be good at something you don't feel strongly about. And so, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's been a, a fun journey so far. Yeah, and you mentioned entrepreneurship, and I mean, you started a couple diverse businesses before GoodRx. So, when did you know that you wanted to start your own business, and and what about yourself did you think lends itself to being an entrepreneur? I mean, I'm lucky in that I had entrepreneurial experiences early on. When I first started working at Yahoo, there were about 25, 30 people there, and I really had just a complete open field to do whatever it is I wanted to do. At Facebook, again, there were about 20 people there, and. You know, I was given as much room as I wanted to just build the best products and services. And very often, the financial side was not even remotely spoken of. It was just, let's build amazing things and you know, the rest will come, right? 
But I think, you know, by the time I, I left Facebook, I was ready to drive the boat myself and to take on all aspects. You know, traditionally, I had done product things. I, I ran product at Yahoo. I ran product at Facebook. But I wanted to really control the destination of the company and not have to get someone else's permission to pursue the things I felt so passionate about. And so I think that's what originally led me down entrepreneurial paths. I had started little things here and there most of my life. I, I have handwritten documents from when I was in high school about projects that I wanted to do. And so I've always kind of had that curiosity. Um, and I think that's innate to entrepreneurism, which is just you're looking around and you're saying, well, is there a better way to do this? And then, uh, yeah, I think it was just finally time to take the leap. You know, as you get older, you're, you only have so many swings left at the plate. You got to do it now or, or you won't do it. So I think that's what ultimately put me over the hump to do it. Maybe I was a little late to be an entrepreneur. I would argue that folks that are at Wharton or even undergrad at Penn should, you know, now's the time, right? I mean, you have limited risk. But uh, anyway, there's never, it's never too late. Good advice. Well, it's been 10 years, I think, pretty nearly to the dot since, since you founded GoodRx. And you launched it with the idea of making prescription purchasing transparent and affordable. So reflecting on these last 10 years, this last decade, how do you think you've done? You know, it's funny. I, other people use the word success. I, I have a hard time with the word success because I don't really know what it means. I mean, have we built a company that uh, has helped a lot of Americans find care and been able to afford prescriptions and, and medical services they otherwise wouldn't? For sure. And I think that's a measure of success. Am I super proud of the hundreds of people that now work here that are having babies and able to afford a mortgage payment and buy a car? That feels like success to me. But other than that, I just you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't really measure it by our stock price. I don't measure it by our market cap. I measure it by impact. And that's really where we started. I mean, you know, I started GoodRx with my two co-founders because I just saw an ugly problem that was important. You know, it was like, wow, people can't find their prescriptions for a fair price. Wow, the actual price of this product is two bucks, but people are paying 300 or just not paying it. You know, those, those are the kinds of things that lit me up then and still light me up, which is just seeing a, an incredible inefficiency out there and a way to change consumer behavior and to potentially change not even just industry, but the way our government and our company, our country operates. You know, those are the things that lit me up 10 years ago, those things that I still get excited about today. I never thought I would be at one place for 10 years because as an entrepreneur, you, you do something, you move on, you do something, you move on. But I just feel like the problems in healthcare are so big and there are so many of them that I'm effectively acting like an entrepreneur every day here because I'm just going after new categories. Yeah, a great example, you know, GoodRx operates in the $400 billion drug category. Okay, healthcare is $4 trillion a year, right? I mean, putting aside the massive size of that, the impact that can have on everyone and for everything, again, from government policy to company profits, et cetera, it's just, there's no shortage of, of problems. Anyone who's listening to this podcast who's thinking about healthcare, just go for it. It's so big, you know, and, uh, and so broken and so fascinating that uh, I think it could keep me entertained for a long, long time. Well, I think healthcare is happy to have you here. Um, so why don't we level set a little bit with our listeners and, and talk about the GoodRx model and what GoodRx offers. So the primary revenue stream, I think most of our listeners will know, is a prescription discount offering, which allows consumers to shop through your proprietary network of cash paid drug prices for generic drugs. You also have a platform for manufacturers to deliver solutions that accompany certain branded drugs, and you've recently scaled the telehealth business. So I'd like to start by talking about the prescription drug product. Can you talk a bit about sort of where you get those cash prices and how you get reimbursed as part of that? Sure. When we first started GoodRx, to be honest, we did anything we could possibly do to get our hands on these prices because they were totally locked up. And many of them still are. 
So I sent my own father into New York pharmacies because New York State has a strange law that requires transparency. It doesn't work, by the way. Don't do this. Don't go into New York pharmacy. They'll look at you like you're crazy. There were 14 states that had websites, half of which were broken, that listed prices. Again, these ridiculous usual and customary prices that no one should actually pay. So we didn't really know. And we just basically knocked on a bunch of doors. And I'd say three quarters of people told us we were wasting our time because no one cared about generic drugs, even though they represent 90% of the drugs markets bill. But we had a few generous souls who basically were like, you know what? Here's how it works. Here's what's going on. And so today, if you look at GoodRx, I think we get, I think the number is about 200 million price points a day. Um, and they come from a variety of sources. In some cases, they come from the pharmacies. In some cases, they come from the pharmacy benefit managers, which are effectively insurance companies for drugs. People aren't familiar with them. Uh, a whole bunch of other data sources that we cobble together. And the hard math for us with our hundreds of engineers and data folks here is to discern all that data, figure out what's wrong because the data is super dirty, and then ultimately you know, figure out what is a consumer filling at the pharmacy. And it's much harder than it sounds because uh, the pricing varies by bottle, like 25-count bottle is a 50-count bottle of different pricing per pill, the day supply that your doctor wrote it for, and then which pill bottle the pharmacist grabbed. It gets incredibly complicated, and it's one of the things I'm most proud of is that we've managed to decipher this. And again, just provide a level of transparency where every other industry has this, but for whatever reason in healthcare, we chose to hide it. And so that's kind of what we do. As you said, we get a referral fee when someone presents a GoodRx coupon at the pharmacy. We also have GoodRx Gold, which is a subscription product, and uh, again, some telemedicine services and brand, as maybe we'll talk about. Awesome. Thanks that over to you. Can you talk a little bit more about your dad knocking on pharmacies in New York? Uh, where were the first places that you were getting your data? Was it the pharmacies? Was it the PBM? Sort of how did that happen? And how many prices was your dad able to get from uh, knocking on doors? Yeah, so I, I'm from New York and uh, my dad lives in the Upper West Side and at the time was in California where we are today. And I just randomly found on Google that New York State had created a law because they were trying to encourage transparency on healthcare where any consumer could walk into any pharmacy and demand a list of the top 20 drugs and the, the prices. I don't think the law was to figure out which prices. And as you'll learn in healthcare, there's a gazillion different prices for any given product. And so he went into his local big chain pharmacy and the pharmacist looked at him like he was from another planet. Han wrote something that was totally wrong, by the way, in retrospect. You know, when we launched GoodRx 1.0, which is at a conference called Health 2.0 in San Francisco, it was literally just a cobbling together of whatever we could scrape on the internet. And I think GoodRx 1.0 was effectively a scraping tool that went out because Costco, for example, publishes prices of drugs, which is great that they do that. Walmart has a 4 in 10 list. Some pharmacies have prescription savings clubs that have certain prices attached to them. Again, we got a few bits and pieces of data from the government or from other sources we could buy. But it, I would say it was right. I think GoodRx 1.0 was not great. What was right was that thirst that everyone had, especially doctors, by the way. You know, we launched this product at a, a health-oriented conference. And at the end of the conference, doctors besieged me. And they were like, this is what I've been looking for because patients yell at me when I write a prescription and then they go to the pharmacy, it's 500 bucks and it's my fault. And, you know, not to mention my front office is dealing constantly with the noise and pain of patients who are just trying to get their meds. And we didn't realize that was the constituents that we were actually serving. You know, I'm so proud today that we have hundreds of thousands of doctors that actively distribute GoodRx information and millions of prescribers whose patients have used GoodRx. And, you know, I think that relationship is just as important as a relationship that we have with not only Americans, but pharmacies as well. So you know, it's been a long journey, a lot of fits and starts, a lot of, you know, dead ends. But I knew all along that there was something that people wanted badly. And that was the biggest piece of feedback I got early on, which I would imagine any entrepreneur thinks about, you know, which is like, hey, I threw this thing up. You know, and what listening carefully to maybe it's not the constituency you thought it, maybe it's a whole different constituency, but someone wants this and someone is thirsty for what you've, you know, thrown up there. And so 
You mentioned how many different prices there are, how complicated pharma is, the wholesale acquisition price, the average wholesale price, the I think you said the usual and customary price. There's so many prices. How did you sort through this? And did you originally have any background in healthcare to be able to get smart on how complicated the system was? The system is really incredibly complicated, which is both obviously a it's a negative just in terms of having to learn it and understand it, but it's a positive in that once you figure it out, you have you know a skill set that very few people have. You know, the words you just used, no regular American would ever talk about. There's like a handful of pharmacy executives on the planet who understand these terms and the dynamics of the industry. And you know, it's it's one of those moats that we have, right? Because you know, I'm sure you could wake up tomorrow and go, I'm gonna do Tim'sDrugSite.com. But then you're quickly going to find out that there's all these, you know, just incredibly complicated obstacles and formulas and that actually make it much harder than you think to show a simple price for a simple drug at a simple pharmacy. And so I did not have a background in healthcare. Again, I was at Facebook and where I <laughs> built photo websites, uh, built photo tagging with my co-founder. And then when I started out on my own, I, I built a company called Daily Strength, which was ultimately acquired by um, a company called Sharecare, which is now a public company. And it was the other side of healthcare. It was really focusing on support groups and helping people gather around the internet uh, around you know all sorts of health and life conditions. So I had no formal healthcare training. I still to this day don't. But what I do have is just an understanding of what consumers are looking for. And most of what I think I do during the day, honestly, is really just translating all these concepts that are so familiar to other industries to healthcare. Because for whatever reason, we seem to actively stop that. You know, if you think about your experience purchasing anything else. It's so straightforward. You, you want to buy uh, toothpaste or TVs, there's a price, you pay it. We all pay the same price. It, it is worth it. Healthcare is just broken. So what if we can sort of basically bring all those same things that everyone's already learned in all these other spaces and just apply them to healthcare in a way that makes sense to consumers? And so I think it's less about having deep healthcare knowledge and more about just understanding how to explain and change this complicated concept into something simple people can understand. So early on, maybe after that conference, just to ground us in a timeline, You've created a list of cash prices for a bunch of drugs, but with a lot of two-sided marketplace, there's this chicken and egg problem of, do you focus on getting more data, so better data points on drugs, or do you focus on getting consumers onto the platform? So where did you fall along that spectrum, and how did you think about getting both the data points and the consumers as you grew to be a little bit more mature of a company? I feel like... Having worked in this industry, well, technology, I should say, for, for 25 years now, the one lesson that always holds true is if you build a great product, people will come, right? And I think our focus really early on was just, can we organize? I mean, it really wasn't a business. When we started GoodRx, nobody wrote a spreadsheet and put together a proposal. We literally were just like, this is broken. Let's see if we can do better. You know, and, and it all came from, again, this personal experience I had with the way I went to a few pharmacies and realized prices varied. And honestly, I was building a product as much for myself as anyone else. I was like, wait a second, can I build something so that instead of me having to go to nine different pharmacies, I could just figure out which one's the best? And so I think that's important. You know, and, and I think sometimes I should be clear that I never actually went to business school. I was supposed to go to, to Stanford GSB and I, I never went. So I have a business school chip on my shoulder. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I think sometimes the analysis of the opportunity in the market gets in the way of just, okay, but is there a, a, you know, a need there? And can we fill that need, you know, like a core human need, whatever that is? What is something that people desperately want that isn't being filled in this product I'm thinking about will actually fill that need, right? And that's how I make all business decisions. And I'm a consumer guy through and through. I don't really do as much B2B stuff. You know, can I build something amazing that consumers will, you know, when, they, when you think about their phone deck, will they put my app on that deck versus something else? 
right? Will they spend three minutes of their day with my thing instead of someone else's? And if you can do that, I feel like you will figure out a way to make a business model later. And obviously in healthcare with $4 trillion to spend, there's so many opportunities to make money. But to me, it all starts with just a consumer experience that touches a core need that a consumer wants. And with every new thing we do at GoodRx, I just had a meeting a few minutes ago about this exact topic. What core need are we solving? What's the problem we're solving? And then we'll figure out later, you know, in terms of how to make it into a business. So what did the earliest iterations of, of the search engine look like? GoodRx is, for consumers who haven't used it, is, is a pretty sleek product. Uh, you log onto the website and it just says, what drug are you looking for? You can search for it and it'll give you options for pharmacies with different price points. So, I mean, was that always the user experience and always the flow? And how much of the focus was on simplicity as part of that? Yeah, and I, I should clarify, you don't even log on. You literally just go to the website. And I say that because most of healthcare requires you to log on or remember that password that you don't have and get that card or your wallet that you can't find. With GoodRx, you literally have a search box. You start typing the first three letters of a drug. We'll help you spell it. We'll help you figure it all out. And then we'll just take you immediately to the most common dosage form and quantity of that drug at pharmacies near you. If you type in a brand name, we'll switch it to the generic because that's actually what's prescribed. So we're trying to do all the work for you. Because again, healthcare is too complicated. I mean, I don't know about you know your listeners, but great example. You know, we have incredible benefits here at GoodRx for our employees, and yet nobody uses them because your insurance company is awful at talking to you. You don't trust them necessarily anyway. You know, I, I think there's just this massive gap between because it's so complicated healthcare. People don't use their benefits right. They don't know how to use their benefits. They choose the wrong plans. They don't know when a benefit should kick in or not. I mean, I feel like every interaction I have with the healthcare system is just so painful, and so. You hit the nail on the head. It's just about simplicity. It's taking away all the noise and just saying, okay, you need a drug, it's this price. And by the way, there's this thing called a coupon, which we actually sort of invented in the space of care because it's it's pretty much feels like a coupon. I show this thing and then it reduces the price. That's what a coupon is. And so I, I think it's really important. And this is just something I am obsessed with to, to make things simple, to make things understandable so that, and, and to translate into other categories that the consumer already understands. Right. I mean, you know, a great example, like insurance in this country, it's so ridiculously complicated, especially for the people who can least handle it, you know, older folks with Medicare and stuff like that. And so like, I try to never use the words deductible and maximum out of pocket and copay. And of course, you know, you were like, you were saying average wholesale price and UNC and all these terrible terms. I don't want to use those words because those words are unique to healthcare and healthcare sucks. So I want to use words that you're used to from other spaces, right? So like, you know, this is the retail price of this product. This is the discount price of this product that I can kind of get my brain around. Right. And so I think one of the big exercises that we work on here, and this is really hard, especially when you're surrounded by technical folks, is what not to include. Like I have tons of information, but what can I not show you and still get you to from point A to point B so you just don't get confused or you give up? Right. And so I love it. I mean, it's so fun because it's like we're surrounded by all this data, but what's actually going to affect change and what's actually going to get you to have a better grasp and more control of your care. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but it's, it's something I spend every day thinking about, which is just keep it simple. No, that does answer my question. And it, and it puts the center of focus, it seems, for GoodRx on, on building good products and the usability of the product being a centerpiece of the strategy um, to get consumers on board. Which is a miracle. So <laughs> <laughs> let's keep going. Perfect. So what was your first big break in terms of getting the data access that you wanted for some of these discount prices? I know now you work mostly with PBMs to get a lot of their price lists. So what was that first big break? And what were those first conversations with the PBMs like uh, when you were asking them to get access to some of their discount networks? Yeah, it wasn't just the PBMs too. I mean, one of the things I'm most proud of over the course of the last decade is 
that we've been able to have a positive relationship with everyone in the healthcare ecosystem, right? I mean, people assume that healthcare companies are all evil and out for profit and stab each other in the back. And I, that may or may not be true. But I will say that I've been pleasantly surprised throughout our journey at how many people are open to talking and how many people are actually, you know, brought us under their wing. And, and I mean, we had incredible conversations from the earliest days with all sorts of executives from various shapes and sizes, people we just met randomly at conferences, people that, you know, professors introduced us to, or, you know, your friend's cousin's dog knew. And everyone was very forthcoming. I mean, you know, again, you may get negative feedback because a lot of people are used to status quo and to like, wait, you want to do something different? That's terrible. The, the default is that's terrible. And you have to figure out how to get through that when you're an entrepreneur. But I think, you know, we basically kept our head down because we always thought that like someone would step on us. Oh, you know, Pharmacy X is going to just turn us off or, you know, PBMY is going to just do something awful. In fact, a funny story, a major PBM, whose name I won't tell you, um, <laughs> did fax every single pharmacist in America at one point and said that they were watching GoodRx and if they, if they put the wrong price up on GoodRx, that they would terminate their contract. And that was terrifying. <laughs> so we thought our, day was, our days were over. But it was all just, I don't know, it, was, it didn't impact anything, actually, ironically. And we actually have a great relationship with that PBM, funny enough. So I, I will say our, our overall demeanor was we were going to keep our head down until we had sufficient market share. And today we have almost 20 million people a month that use GoodRx. But in all honesty, when we finally engaged, which funny enough, um, my college roommate ended up being the chief digital officer of CVS. And that was one of the first pharmacies that we really engaged with. And just to be clear, this is a guy who I went to frat parties with. And it was yeah. just very strange to suddenly be in a conference room with him. And when, you know, I, I literally called him. I was like, is it safe? Like, can we come in there and we won't get destroyed? And he was like, it's safe, I promise. And we have an amazing <laughs> relationship with CVS now and all the other pharmacies. And you know, one of the unique things about the position that we occupy is that we sort of both view each other as, as customers. Meaning like to us, they're customers providing us both data, like you said, as well as you know, helping us run our business. And to them, we're a source of revenue. So sort of funny, every time we go to dinner, you know, we're each trying to buy each other dinner because we think each other is the customer. And that's the best kind of relationship. And so for someone else who's thinking about getting into this business, I think you start by asking, you get out there, you'd be surprised how open people will be. You know, but at the same point, you do keep your cards close to your vest just naturally until you, you know, are ready to reveal whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish. But I will say that you'd be surprised how far asking will get you. Good advice. And so... You've been this entrepreneur for a while, and I know you've previously said that the first time when you had to put pants on and shave your beard is when you first felt like a CEO. Can you reflect on the moment where you felt like you made it, if, if you ever had that moment, um, and whether you had any doubts along the way? Gosh, that's a good question. I don't feel like I've made it. <laughs> I know that sounds crazy. I mean, I will say going public is a really interesting experience that I did not expect. I've certainly gotten positive and negative feedback about being a public company. And it, it certainly is much more awareness. I, you know, I think like every time we release earnings, like I, I'm on TV and we get all sorts of um, coverage and uh, good and bad. And that's new, I think, in terms of like our profile and my profile. But I don't know. I, you know I, I also, at the same point, miss the days when it was three of us in a hallway from a friend's company that we couldn't afford rent on. So... I guess I don't, I don't really view it much as like feeling like I've ever made it. I, I still feel like you know, every day I'm presented with new problems about some massive thing that's going to you know, be, have to be overcome or figured out. I think we have more organizational challenges now when we have hundreds of people here and communication. I think my role has changed a lot, which is tricky. You know, one of the things that I think is underappreciated in business is let's say you're the world's greatest, what? I don't care, engineer, accountant, legal person, whatever. And then you start succeeding and all of a sudden you no longer do that thing that you're the greatest at. You're managing a bunch of people who do that. And it's all, I'm all about knowledge transfer and that's great. 
but that implies that you're a really great manager. And, and I think that's a, such a different skill set and one that I think a lot of folks, including us, struggle with. You know, I'm lucky I have the world's greatest co-founder and co-CEO who's sitting 10 feet away from me now. And we somehow made it work, but it's hard. It's, it's really hard. And I, I almost worry less about the like zero to one phase and more of the like, I don't know what you want to call it, the 10 to 100 phase where suddenly you have to transition away from that thing that made you so good that you got to 10 in the first place. And you know, hopefully that's a problem that everyone has. But um, anyway, it's it's that's my long way of saying that I don't think I'll ever feel like I've actually made it. <laughs> so, can you talk a little bit more about that decision to go public? Why was it the right time, and and what what are the, some of the positive surprises and and some of the hurdles you faced as the result of the switch? Like I know you talked about sort of managing quarter to quarter and and being on television for those earnings calls. I think you have to be really diligent about not letting your publicness overtake what's so special and good about what you do, right? I mean, obviously you have now expectations. You have a whole new constituency that you hadn't had before, which is these public investors who are notoriously fickle and you know that you you want to keep happy. And I enjoy it. I enjoy talking to potential investors and explaining what we do, but you have to keep it in check because you also have your day job. You also have, you know, again, I'm a product person. I want to be building great product. And Again, I think you do have this bigger platform, right? Because more people are watching what you're doing, more people are listening. Uh, you obviously have a currency that you can use to acquire other companies with. Uh, the, my favorite part, honestly, is rewarding employees and shareholders who bet on us early on, who now you know are seeing the fruits of all that. So that part I love, but I don't love it when it's noisy. I don't love it when you know our stock price today, like one of my pet peeves, which I probably shouldn't say out loud, but I will, is when you know I'll get a text from someone saying, hey, you must have had a great day today because your stock was up 4%. And I'd be like, really? Like that's a barometer of my mood. What you know that some random investor chose to buy or sell my stock. Like, and I, I think it's really, really hard. You know, you have this bright shining light in front of you that you kind of have to look away from and continue to focus on what's important. And so I think that you know, no surprise, there's advantages to being public, and there's but you have to be really careful that it doesn't change the business and you know allows you to still do what you do best. Again, which in my case is I hope is build great products. But getting through to those people is so hard. And I use GoodRx and I always check the price on GoodRx as I'm going to pay. And I have insurance right now. And I have found situations where GoodRx is significantly cheaper than my insurance. And I'm always surprised because let's say my insurance company uses ESI as their PBM. How would I see a lower price on GoodRx? So one of the things I'm most proud of at GoodRx is that we have brought together pricing from a wide variety of sources. So again, in some cases, pharmacies may make a low cash price, like Walmart has a $4 list and a $10 list. It's the smallest of drugs and it changes all the time, but they do have a list. Um, and then you've got a bunch of pharmacies that do cash pay things. Then you have all the PBMs, as you mentioned, like Express Scripts is one, that offer these you know, effectively cash discount prices, which is uh, you know, what GoodRx coupons effectively are. What people don't realize is that the industry is based on averages. So if I'm a PBM and you're a pharmacy, we work out a deal where you're going to get 83% off of a, you know, a standardized price, right? But that's an average, meaning one drug could be 17%, the other one could be 92%. You know, and of course, nobody can predict what necessarily would be filled over the course of the contract term. So all of a sudden, you get these crazy imbalances, right? Where uh, they're constantly adjusting prices on a daily basis between pharmacies and PBMs in order to fulfill those contracts and make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Now, when you have you know over a dozen PBMs in your network, like GoodRx does, you're seeing all these you know call them uh, movements, a uh, price, 
And you're able to help the consumer guide them to the, the best price, guide them to the price that's right for them. And that, you know, that obviously the PBM and the pharmacy are contracted to accept, but the consumer wouldn't know any better. You know, we weren't the first people to use these discounted prices. There was, um, you know, discount cards existed long before GoodRx, but they were kind of shady because what they were is imagine someone randomly on the street handed you a card and said, hey, you're going to save 80%. Check this thing out. And remember, 80% was an average and who knew what was happening on that individual transaction. And so then someone showed up at the pharmacy and it was 16% or maybe zero or who knows what. And they were really upset and they thought this was a shady company. And, and what we do is, you know, I think people underestimate the two things that are excess. First and foremost, we tell you what the price will be. We don't just say you're going to save a ton. We say, here's what the price can be when you show up. And then secondly, of course, we help you make decisions about how to purchase that drug, either within your given pharmacy or maybe by transferring to another pharmacy. And so that's really the, the nuts and bolts of it, I guess. So why does this work only in pharma? This process of creating a marketplace of prices that pharmacies accept, why doesn't this work for traditional medical procedures? So why can't I see Aetna's and Humana's negotiated price for an MRI and choose the lowest in the same way that you guys are displaying different PBMs negotiated prices with pharmacies? Well, my hope is that some folks who are listening to your podcast are actually working on this because there's never been a better time to try to unravel this mess. Look, we lucked out in the sense that there's a lot of advantages with prescriptions. You know, first of all, it's something you buy in a retail environment, usually with a credit card standing at a counter, it's something you do often. It's something you kind of know the name of. Now, if you woke up tomorrow morning and you had abdominal pain and you went to the ER and you got a complex thing where they also charge you for the band-aid and the IV drip in the room, it's very hard. First of all, you want to get good care. You don't care about a price as much necessarily. Second of all, it's not something, again, you do all the time. You went to the ER, right? And, you know, and third of all, it's just really, really hard. Like there were like 9,000 codes in that event that you had, right? And so comparing these prices has traditionally been very hard. Now, I, that was kind of an extreme example where you go to the ER, there's all sorts of more, I'll call it less intense care, right? Whether it be like, I don't know, a primary care visit or uh, diabetes management stuff, or even a birth control, getting a script or something like that, you know? So there's many, many more simple versions of medical care where I think you're starting to see some organization of prices. You know, everything from urgent care clinics, which will list prices to these hospital charge masters, which are floating around. And you're seeing, I think over the course of the next few years, you're going to see a lot more exposure to both planned prices and negotiated rates of hospitals. I think it's still hard because let's make sure to remember the consumer in this flow. Like at what point are you going to pick up the consumer and say, hey, I know you're thinking about getting this procedure. Let's talk about it and let's guide you to the right answer. So there's a whole slew of companies out there and I encourage you to poke around and there are taking various angles of attack on this. And again, I think the openness of the data, such as uh, Medicare has blue button data, which is coming out soon. And again, some of these um, additional legislation that's coming that I think is going to make it better. But I think we still have a long way to go because it is just so, so, so messy. So I certainly hope, look, it's something we're thinking about a lot. It's something I personally am spending a lot of time on because I would love to bring the GoodRx magic to the rest of care. But I don't want to uh, trivialize the incredible challenges that, that come with it. Uh, it is not going to be easy. And most importantly, I think easy to change consumer behavior. I think that's going to be the hardest one. So that leads me to think you guys recently or not actually seemingly prophetically in 2019 bought a telehealth business to sort of get into that care business. So the reason I say prophetically just before the pandemic, and I assume that the volume through that telehealth organization probably skyrocketed as a result of the pandemic. So do you see... GoodRx Care as a funnel into the prescription business or as a foot in the door to get more into care delivery and to create sort of more of a marketplace effect there? 
So we're, we're psychic and we knew that the pandemic was coming. And so we went out in advance. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, <laughs> you know, I think it's exactly uh, what we talked about a few minutes ago, which is we want to bring transparency to medical care. And it's very difficult to do that. I mean, I want to actually the next step of transparency is really just to find affordable care for, for consumers. For the typical wait to see a doctor in this country, I believe, is 29 days to see a primary care physician. I think it's something like 50% of Americans even have a primary care physician. I think I, I personally know hundreds of people who are like, yeah, I'm not going to go to the doctor. It's going to be too expensive. Like they don't even go. They just, I'll live with what I got because the, I can't wait for the bills. They're going to be crazy. So we really, first of all, the Hey Doctor guys were just super smart, tech focused, really great at, at, again, translating complex interactions into something simple. And then I think we, our perspective is really more around how can we help people who don't have a prescription, which is a huge chunk of people that come to GoodRx, like, oh, I want this drug, but I actually don't have a prescription, so I can't get it. But then beyond that, also just try to start to experiment with ways to provide care at an upfront price that a consumer can understand. You know, I think on GoodRx Care, we have visits that I think started about 19 bucks. And, you know, I think when you can say to a consumer, hey, here's this thing you're trying to accomplish. Did you know you can do it from home? Did you know you can even have a drug been sent to you from home? And did you know it'll cost you like 39 bucks or 29 bucks, whatever the number is? It starts to make sense. It starts to solve that consumer need. Now, that said, I don't think telemedicine is eating the world. You know, I, I was just talking to a doctor friend of mine who was telling me that she had a telemedicine consult with someone. And at the very end, he was like, that's great, doc. So when do I get to see in person? And she's like, that was the visit. <laughs> you know, I think it's, it's really, really hard to get people to understand that that video of Zoom you know, is a replacement. But I think for certain things, especially when consumers are just, you know, the blocking and tackling basic stuff, I think there's great room for telemedicine to solve that. I'm also obsessed with mental health. I think there's really, really great room for telemedicine and mental health. But I don't want to make it sound like telemedicine is going to be every interaction with a doctor is going to be telemedicine. Uh, I'm excited for the future. I'm excited for some of the like wearables and remote patient monitoring stuff. But I think for us, it's really more of a playground to experiment with ways that we can you know, show consumers a better way, especially when with an affordable price attached to it. And more broadly, sort of aside from getting more consumers to use the platform, what do you see as some inefficiencies in the pharmaceutical purchasing experience that, that GoodRx is, is still trying to address now? There are just so many. <laughs> I mean, I think we have done a reasonably good job of showing patients affordability options for generic drugs. We're still a you know, small percentage of those drugs that are purchased. I think there's a long way for us to go in solving generic drug affordability. I don't think we've done very much on convenience. The reality is, is that mail is still a small percentage, even with the entry of Amazon, is still a small percentage of prescriptions and it doesn't seem to be growing. So that's kind of crazy. We had a pandemic and people still went into the pharmacy to get their meds. And then there's brand. And brand is a whole different topic. It's, it's like it's like a whole different language. You know, you'd, you'd think that, oh yeah, GoodRx does generic drugs, so then it's just a natural flip to do brand. But brand has entirely different dynamics as it sounds like you're familiar with, right? There's one seller, you know, the, obviously insurance is a must because if a drug is $2,000, you've got to have some, you know, backup. I shouldn't say must, a must in most cases, but not all. And so it, it, it has totally different dynamics. And I'm so proud of what we've been building over the course of the last year or two, where we're starting to actually tackle that. Because again, brand may be a small percentage. It's like, I don't know, maybe 10% of the drugs that people buy, but it represents a much bigger swath of spend, as you can imagine. And the great news is, is that manufacturers are really, really open to working with us and really, really open to doing a better job of finding affordability options for consumers. But consumers don't know about it. Manufacturers aren't very good at talking to them. Doctors are stuck in the middle with angry patients and trying to get approvals and prior authorizations and all those things. And so I think we, um, we're really excited to tackle this problem. And I think we're making a lot of great headway. 
because I think, again, brand is, is, has different dynamics and ones that uh, I think we're really, really well positioned to solve. I love that. So as we're wrapping up here, you've had an incredibly successful entrepreneurial journey. Um, and I think most of our listeners are, are MBA students and you've given a ton of advice throughout this episode, but would love to just hear your reflections after a really successful IPO on, on what led you to be successful. And let me use the word successful. I know you may not ascribe it to yourself, but sort of what led you to get here? Yeah, I'm always hesitant to give advice because I feel like every journey is unique and what worked for one person at one point in time may not work for others. I think the hardest thing that one struggles with, especially as an entrepreneur, is, is trusting yourself. It's having the right amount of paranoia because I think that drives a lot of entrepreneurism. But at the same point, having the faith and trust to get through the bad days and to you know, hear the no's and to let the no's fire you up right? And, and get you more determined than ever to pursue what you want to pursue. So a lot of times people, you know, they write their histories and they talk about all this great stuff that they did. And it always sounds like it's predetermined from day one, like, oh, I meant to do this. And I always went that way. I've been around the block long enough to know nobody's best laid plans actually come out that way. So you might start, you know, doing something and before you know it, you're doing something else. And that just business you thought you're going to do actually opened up a door to a different business. So you got to be flexible and open-minded because that's just the nature of the beast. We live in a changing world. But as long as you, you know, have trust in yourself and you're excited about what you're working on, uh, I think your odds are, are better than most. And you know, look, I, I, I'm jealous of the folks that are listening to this because they're at that point in their life where they can just go out there and swing for the fences because that's, that's what I want to do too. So I don't know. I appreciate talking about this with all you guys, but I, I really ultimately feel that you know, trust your own judgment. It's great advice. The non-advice or, or advice is, is great advice still. Um, well, I think the world is a, is a better place for the fact that you never put on the top cat and trench coat and went to work in business and, and went down the entrepreneurial journey. And I'd like to wrap the episode up by asking uh, if you have any job opportunities for MBA students, uh, any opportunities for some of our listeners to uh, work a little bit more closely with GoodRx. We do. I mean, we've hired a ton. I mean, we've hired hundreds. I think we doubled the size of our workforce during uh, the pandemic. And all these things we talked about today are massive categories that require people that are really smart. And I want to just emphasize, this doesn't mean you have a PhD in healthcare economics. This means you understand consumer behavior and you understand how to guide people through this mess, uh, any mess. And, and then we'll show you the healthcare mess and you can use the, you know, your knowledge from previous. So yes, the short answer is we have tons of job openings. Everyone should check our job board. And uh, feel free to reach out to me personally if you want. Um, and I'll see if I can help. Perfect. Thanks so much, Doug. Congratulations on all the success. Thank you so much.